This morning we're going to jump back into our study of Mark. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. We took a brief break last week, and we're going to jump back in this week into this study. And one of the reasons I want us to do this together this morning, jump back into Mark, is because if you had a week like I've had, which I'm pretty sure you did, you've been wondering, so what's the new normal? How can I grab on to anything uh, that resembles normalcy or rhythm in this seemingly unprecedented season that we find ourselves in? I think one unique way that we can embrace some normalcy, some rhythm together as a church family, is to dive back into Mark. We started studying Mark in the fall. We picked it up again in the spring. I think that it will give us that a unique sense of rhythm as a church family to jump back into a study that we've been in the midst of. To once again, even though we're in our own homes, on our own patios, in our own dining rooms, sitting at our living rooms, we're not physically present, but we can engage once again in a study that's familiar to us a study that we've been in the midst of um, on again, off again uh, for nine months together. So let's just jump back into Mark and enjoy some time chewing on a book that we've been studying together. Let me go ahead and pray for us and then we'll read. Father, thanks so much for this time to, to study, uh, to consider your word. We thank you for a chance to engage it. We want to be good students. We're your kids. We know you love us. We know that's why you've given us your word. So Spirit, we ask that you would make us good students of this word so that we can be shaped by it. We want to fall more in love with Jesus, and we want to look more like Jesus, and we want to celebrate the way that the Father has loved us. Make us those kind of students this morning. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. If you want to grab your copy of God's Word, you can follow along, and uh, I'll read for us. Starting in verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, to Jesus that is, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he, Jesus, said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. And he, Jesus, said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained for me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. So we come to this text this morning, and it's a text all about tradition and about how tradition has actually undermined the spiritual health, the spiritual lives, the spiritual growth of these religious leaders. And what we're going to see as we study it together this morning is Jesus saying the same thing to us, that sometimes our traditions do the same thing. And one thing we need to do right here at the, at the beginning is make sure we understand the, the traditions that were in play as Jesus is being confronted by these Pharisees and scribes. Uh, there's this movie I remember watching many, many times as a, as a child growing up. Uh, it was Fiddler on the Roof. So maybe some of y'all saw Fiddler on the Roof. I bet a bunch of us saw the first hour of Fiddler on the Roof, but not all three hours of Fiddler on the Roof. Like, no joke, Fiddler on the Roof, 179 minutes long, and it feels every bit of 179 minutes long. And really, the only part we ever talk about is the first 30 minutes. 
And that's a that's the a portion of the movie that has the song about tradition, which we all still know and and sometimes hums to hum to ourselves. I'm not going to sing it here, not by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, in that opening sequence where you have Tevya, and he he is the one who's sort of singing about the fiddler on the roof, and he's singing about tradition, uh, and he says in the song he's talking about these traditions about the, fa- the the mama and the papa and and the children and so on and so forth speaking about their traditions he says how did these traditions get started i'll tell you i don't know and that's what we have here as jesus is confronting traditions these are traditions that he says are traditions of men the pharisees and the scribes they're calling them the tradition of the elders but jesus pushes back on that and he summarizes them as the tradition of men and we see it sort of come to a head in verse 8 when he says to them, to the, to the religious leaders, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. That's what's going on here. There's a, there's a conflict between the commandment of God, what God has said, and the traditions, the practices, the thought patterns of these men that have been passed down generation to generation. And so when we're talking about these traditions of men, one of the ways, like to, sim- to simply state it, like these are well-intentioned, man-made safeguards against transgressing God's law. And sometimes they were meant to be uh, practices that would honor God's self-revelation. Like, so we have these traditions that Jesus is confronting, and it's traditions that the religious people, had, that the Jewish religious uh, folks had embraced, and they were traditions that were well-intentioned when they were first started. They were meant to sort of safeguard so that people would live holier lives. And these traditions would have been intended to deepen people's personal and practical living in light of God's self-revelation, to draw them closer to God, which sounds good, but as we'll see in what Jesus shows us, it doesn't actually work out that way. And so Jesus compares that and contrasts it with the commandment of God. And if you look at verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, It's in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men, he says. He's saying that the commandments of men are being taught on par with the commandments of God. And even more than that, the commandments of of man are being allowed to supplant the authority of God. And so that's the issue at hand. Traditions are not on par with the commandment of God. And even though they weren't viewed as such at first, they can oftentimes devolve into being treated as some type of principle that can then supplant the authority of God. Traditions are not from God. They're from man. Commandments are from God. What God tells us to do, we must do. Traditions can or can be observed or they don't have to be observed. They're from man. They're just ways that we uniquely try and pursue the things that we think are best. We create traditions to try and do that. And that doesn't mean Jesus is not saying that every tradition is necessarily bad, but he is helping us understand that traditions are not inspired, and necessarily that means that they are not necessarily good, which means that every one of our traditions is not above being questioned. And even beyond that, we should question our traditions. Not because every tradition needs to be rejected, but because every tradition needs to be considered in light of what God himself has said. All the ways that we think, all the things that we do, the things that we've just received and assimilated, all of those things. Because that's what these traditions are. For us, just like the Jewish population, traditions are what we receive and what we assimilate. They influence the way we do things, the way we think about things. We have to check those things. We have to take our traditions, we have to take our thoughts, we have to take those paradigms, and we have to assess them based on what God himself has actually said. Because if we don't, 
we can experience the same undermining of spiritual growth that these religious leaders in the Jewish population experience. You know, when tradition undermines our spiritual growth, it means that the, th the way that we're practicing our lives, the way we're living our lives, or practicing our religion, it's actually distancing us from the relationship that God designed us for, and that's a relationship with Him, a close relationship with Him. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about two ideas when it comes to how our traditions can undermine our spiritual growth, two ideas that Jesus highlights in this text. And the first one has to do with when tradition fuels a sense of superiority for us. When our traditions are fueling not a love for Jesus, but a sense of superiority, that's a problem. And we see that come into view here in our text when Jesus is confronted about ceremonial hand-washing. This is in verses 1 through 8. We have, in verses 1 through 8, we have the, the issue at hand is that Jesus and his followers, we know from Luke chapter 11, Jesus as well as his followers, uh, don't observe the ceremonial hand-washing that the, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, have said is good and proper and is a tradition that they've received from the elders. And this is a tradition that they have developed because they went back to Exodus chapter 30 and Exodus chapter 40 where God was telling the priests that they needed to be ceremonially washed when they would go and perform their duties. The Jewish population, the Jewish leaders had taken that directive from God, that commandment from God, and created a tradition that everyone would observe, which was sort of a ceremonial washing. And as one commentator put it, this religious washing had a good intent. It was namely to remind Jews, he says, that they were unclean before God, which is good. It's good to be reminded that we all stand condemned, that none of us is clean in our own right. So it's not out of bad intentions that this tradition started. But now this tradition has devolved into an indictment against Jesus, where the Pharisees and religious leaders are saying, you're, you're a lax or poor Jewish leader. Like you are not leading well. You could paraphrase it this way. They say, because you and your followers, Jesus, don't observe this tradition, you're demonstrating a lack of piety, and you're demonstrating that you are spiritually inferior to us. That's what they're confronting Jesus with here, because he doesn't ceremonially hand wash. Now, I know uniquely, we find ourselves this week, having just lived a week, if you, I know for me, I've not had, uh, I've not heard so much about hand washing ever in my life as I did this last week. I've not been told so many times I should wash my hand for, hands for 20 seconds every time I wash them. I also have not counted how, how long I'm washing my hands like I have this week ever before. Like hand washing is on our brains right now because hygiene and sanitation is on our brains right now. That's not what this is about. Ceremonial hand-washing is not about hygiene, it's about a spiritual tradition. And Jesus is saying that spiritual tradition is not means for you to, be, to, to, to have a spiritual pride about you that says that you are somehow superior to others, or you can call others inferior because of your observance of an extra-biblical tradition. So how do we contextualize this? How do we actually uh, live out of what Jesus is confronting here? How do we experience the same confrontation? Because we, we're all about hand-washing right now, but it's not ceremonial for us. It is all about hygiene for us. But what I want us to see is in this example of ceremonial hand-washing, we, we see that, that the contextualization for us, the way that we can apply it for ourselves, is Jesus is confronting us and saying, are you holding a practice or are you holding a perspective that fuels love for Jesus? Or is it a practice or perspective that's just fueling your own personal pride? Because any tradition, any practice, any thought pattern that we have that's all about us and not about Jesus 
that's a tradition that we're going to need to cut loose. We see this in the life of the church. You also see it in the life of, uh, of individual believers. But one of the ways that we sort of see this ceremonial hand-washing sense of superiority show up in the church, we see it a lot when we play what I'll call the church superiority comparison game. Why my church is better than your church, or why my denomination is better than your denomination. This is where we see a lot of that ceremonial hand-washing superiority show up in the way that we think, the traditions that we have received and now we think make us better than somebody else. And it's not just us Reformed Presbyterians. This applies to all of God's children. We all struggle. It doesn't matter if you're at the traditional end of the spectrum or the progressive end of the spectrum or someplace in between. Like, let's just talk about music style. We get so excited about our music style that oftentimes what we prefer in music and the reason that we prefer it at first is because we feel drawn into worship of Jesus. It draws us to him. But over time, that preference on worship style, on music style, can actually devolve into us feeling spiritually superior to people who don't do likewise. I mean, at one end of the spectrum, you've got folks who love a big, giant pipe organ, and they want to only sing a song that's been vetted by at least 250 years. Anybody who wrote a song should have been dead for over 200 years for it to be sung because it's lasted the test of time. You've got that at one end. Then you've got folks who, they, they don't have a pipe organ. They may have never seen a pipe organ. They definitely can't put a pipe organ up on the stage, and they're afraid of what the smoke machine would do to the pipe organ, even if they did have it. All they want are electric guitars and drums and multiple vocalists and so on and so forth. You have those ends of the spectrum. And at both ends, you can have this, this temptation towards feeling superior, towards having a sense of, of pride and superiority about how we do worship. You can say at one end, you know, you're so cold and you, you have no joy in your worship and you're so antiquated, uh, your worship isn't stirring your heart. And at the other end, you have this sense of superiority that says what you do is so you focused, you don't have reverence for God. And so we end up, ha we end up taking our preferences and then making them indictments that we aim at other people because of their preferences. That is ceremonially hand-washing when it comes to musical style and worship, and we need to have no part of it. And just because we at FPO have a blended style of worship doesn't mean we're immune. It means that we look potentially at both of those extremes and we say, we're better than both of you. So we're in the same camp. We all have to be careful when it comes to this idea of superiority of style and, and the, way that we, um, the way that we pursue worship, corporate worship together. Maybe it's in the liturgy. You've got some churches that have like a, a high liturgy with lots of moving parts that are, that are traditional components of worship passed down by generations. At the other end, you have those who have almost no liturgy. It's just music and word. And both, at both ends, you can have a sense of pride and superiority. And yet again, for us, in a mixture of both, um, we can oftentimes have the superiority of thinking that we in the middle ground have figured it out and nobody else has. So we have to be aware of the church superiority comparison game. Maybe it has to do with whether or not you have dance in the service or visual arts in the service or whether or not you have a church building, what your architecture is like, or, or if you're in a storefront, or how do you dress? Do you dress this way or that way? Do you dress more formally? Do you dress more uh, relaxed? And then those things are preferences, but over time, those traditions that we embrace, we end up using them as indictments against other believers. There's no place for that in the church. Another place we see ceremonial hand-washing, not in the life of the church, but in ourselves um, personally, 
is when we hold to traditions that we've received, maybe from previous generations, and in so doing, we take a preference uh, and we aim it at, at other members of the church family, of our church family or others, of the, the large church as an indictment. And one that I've seen that has, you know, breaks our heart when we think about it. None of us wants to be complicit in it. Uh, but for many generations, there was a stigma against someone going and getting counseling. There was a, it was almost in the sense that like if you told somebody, hey, um, yeah, I'm seeing, a, I'm seeing a counselor, it's like they felt awkward for you because things must be so bad that you had to see a counselor. Now, I would say in recent years, maybe even um, recent decades, we've seen this stigma start to be, uh, you know, it's, it started being disassembled, you could say. We're kind of getting rid of this stigma over time so that people are realizing, no, actually, that's a really healthy practice to let someone, an outside observer, help me see where the gospel needs to be pressed into my life in ways that I've lost sight of, where my blind spots are, they can speak into it. Uh, but we need to have no stigma when it comes to folks being engaged in counseling. Uh, that's a good and a healthy pursuit of flourishing most times. And we need to support folks and celebrate that for them. So if our tradition says that counseling is something that we should feel ashamed about, that tradition needs to be cut loose. It's unhealthy. Now, we need to move on and talk about this other aspect of tradition, but I just want to remind you, like, if you think about the effect that this pride and, and sense of superiority can have on your spiritual life, like if you are focused on yourself instead of Jesus, you are not deepening your relationship with him, and you're not pursuing other people. It is hamstringing your relationship, your spiritual growth. There is no place for us to hold on to any tradition that makes us feel better than anyone else. We want to embrace traditions that push us closer to Jesus. If they don't, we must cut them loose. All right, let's talk about another aspect before we wrap up, and that's when our traditions actually veil our self-absorption. And that's what's happening with this idea of Corbin in our text, where, where you have the Pharisees and, and the scribes are part of this tradition, have passed down this tradition called Corbin, which means, functionally, it's a practice where you could sidestep your responsibility to do what you'd rather avoid. Like if you were supposed to care for your aging parents, you could sidestep that, and you could instead make it a, a choice that accomplishes what you want for yourself, which means I want to be elevated in the eyes of other people. So at the same moment, I can neglect my parents, my aging parents, and look better in other people's eyes in the process. That's what's ha happening in the practice of Corbin. And we have Jesus calling these Pharisees onto the mat again. And you can even hear like a holy sarcasm, if you want to call it that, in verse 9, when he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. He's essentially saying, you're rejecting God. And he goes on in verse 13, he says, you're making void the word of God. You're leading people who profess to love God to openly actually disregard the call that God has placed on their lives. So there are ways that our traditions actually veil the fact that we are self-absorbed and are pursuing our self-interest. But we feel like we can, we can celebrate it because we have traditions that celebrate things that God is opposed to. All right, so let's contextualize that. You know, this, is, this idea of Corbin for you and for me, it's a practice or a perspective or a policy that we've received, and we want to hang on to it, but we want to hang on to it for personal reasons, not for gospel reasons. We want to justify doing what we want to do, and we want to insulate ourselves from any type of biblical conviction. 
And so we have these traditions, these perspectives that we have had passed down to us, and we're happy to hang on to them because they allow us to live the way we want to live. We can look at the life of the church, but also in our lives as well, just, just like two for each. Like when we think about in the life of the church, one example that comes to my mind over the hand, last handful of years, like we have our own political convictions, and it's okay to have your own political convictions about what you think the magistrate, the government, should do as it executes its duty in our nation. That is totally fine. But our political convictions cannot trump the heart and the attitude that Jesus calls us to. And one place that this was, we felt this probably in the last five years uh, is through the, the question of illegal aliens in, in our borders and also refugees in our borders. Like you can have political convictions, you can have uh, perspectives, you can have paradigms politically that you would like to see upheld by the magistrate, but when push comes to shove for you and me personally, the gospel calls us to a specific kind of engagement with individual men and women. And we cannot let our traditions, our perspectives, even if they have a good and valid place in the public sphere, in the public square, they cannot determine for us how we will or will not love, serve, and care for those that we come in contact with. That's one area where we see Corbin in our lives um, individually and, and corporately. Another that we've seen in the church here recently, we want to protect the image of the church, and that's why there have been so many cases of abuse that have been covered up over the years. We want to protect the image of the church. Well, the reality is protection of the image of the church is Corbin because God would never have us trump the integrity that he calls the church to out of a desire to falsely protect the image of the church. And so we need to acknowledge that when we cover up abuse instead of repenting publicly for it, that's Corbin in the eyes of God. And then for us in our personal lives, just a couple well, I think one of the ways that I struggle with it, and maybe you do as well, an idea of Corbin for me, a perspective that I use to justify doing what I want to do, is the idea of family first. This idea of I've got to put my family first. And is that true? Yeah, it's definitely true. I should prioritize my family. But if family first is what I use so that I can get out of being actively involved in other ways that I can give myself away, whether it's in the life of the church or in acts of service, if there's no space in my life for acts of service, uh, for engagement with my lost neighbors, if there's no place for, for me to live connected to my church family, then saying it's because I'm a man who's, who's all about family first is just a smokescreen because that means that there are other things that I should be willing to sacrifice so that I can love my family, lead my family, engage my neighbors, and live in community. And we use the smokescreen of family first and we use that as a way to actually not engage in areas that make us uncomfortable or that seem too time-consuming and too inconvenient and too messy. And that's us saying Corbin. And it's actually us telling God, I'm going to say family first because I don't want to do the other things that are messy and complicated that you've called me to. Now, we're running out of time this morning. Uh, and I want to leave you with just some encouragement here. How, how do we take this idea, this idea of, of a desire for spiritual growth and acknowledge that our traditions can actually impede it? How do, we, how do we confront our traditions? And the way that we confront them is we actually question them in light of what God has said. 
And so the best first step for you and me to question our traditions that may be undermining our spiritual growth is to come humbly and see what God has said. And this is a shameless plug. Read the Bible. Jump in on the FPO Bible reading plan. That's the first step. We have to know what God has said, and He will use through the Spirit His inerrant Word to begin convicting us on the traditions that are actually idols that we're serving and leveraging. And He'll start to dismantle them for us. And in so doing, when the Corbin gets shown out and the ceremonial hand-washing gets shown out in our lives, we will be able to repent and run to Jesus and feel afresh a deepening relationship with Him. Let's not let our traditions impede our growth as followers of Jesus and our experience of the love that he has for us, how much he cares for us, and how good it is to be living in light of what he said, not in light of the traditions of men. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks so much for this time. I pray now that you will help us to be good students of your word throughout this week as we continue to read your word. Help it to to be the proper framework that we have. Help it to to lead us to question things that we had left unquestioned for too long. Help us to be good students of your word week in and week out, day in and day out. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.